You're listening to episode 11 of the Inconvenience Podcast featuring Brandon Lawrence. Welcome to episode 11 of the Inconvenience Podcast. My name is Frank Beard. And I'm Al Bear, the gas station gourmet. And welcome back, Frank. It's good to be back. I know. This is our next batch of 10 episodes, and I am super excited about this. It's been a, been a crazy year. Uh, I'm actually in a completely new role. It's COVID still going on. It, it's just like so, so many things are changing rapidly this year. And as we started thinking about, um, okay, we've done 10 episodes. What next? Like, what is, what is our... What, what can we do that's new and exciting? And we just really settled on the idea that maybe we should put a theme together and release a batch of 10 episodes around that theme, episodes 11 through 20. And we settled on the case for differentiation um, because I think more than being a catchphrase or a buzzword as it's sometimes treated, there's a segment of the industry where this has actually become a necessary survival strategy over the next few years. And I mean... This is a great time to pivot, a great time to make changes, and so we really want to bring on guests um, that are going to drive this point home in different ways. So for to, to kick this off and really sort of frame the conversation, we invited Brandon Lawrence on, who I would encourage you to go to our website at inconveniencepodcast.com and check out his bio. Brandon is a fuels consultant who worked with Murphy USA for a long time. He's a data scientist, one of the sharpest people I've ever met in this industry. And um, he's got a perspective that I think is very valuable to listen to. Yeah, it's going to be great stuff. And look, you know, I'm in and out of these uh, small individually owned stores all the time. The one thing I hear from the owners and the managers, we don't have time to go to conferences. We don't have time to uh, to take advantage of some of the things that the larger operators can. And so uh, these podcasts really have great information. If you're a small operator, you need to listen to Inconvenience, especially these these coming up. Yeah, and just for anyone you know new that's tuning in, I mean, look, the goal with this podcast was always to kind of create that feeling of, I mean, we're sitting around a table, we're sitting around a bar, whatever it is, just having an honest, unfiltered conversation about what's going on. Um, Al and I are both fans of long-form podcast. That was that's really been our goal to to try to create that. So, I would just encourage everyone, um, you know. If this is your first time listening, check out a couple of our past episodes, but I think you're really going to enjoy this. You can, of course, follow us anywhere that you can find podcasts. Um, those are all linked on our website. But with that said, let's just dive right into this conversation because I, I, I think this is actually a really important one to have. I want to give just everyone a quick little background. Um, you know, I'd been talking with Brandon Lawrence here for actually probably a few months now just about some of our observations of what had, what had been really going on during this pandemic in, this, in the convenience store industry. And we ended up putting together an article on convenience store decisions, uh, which will be linked on the podcast page, and you can find it on my social media too. It's called, Is COVID-19 a Dress Rehearsal? And I think this is a really important topic to use to frame our next batch of 10 episodes in differentiation, because it really makes a case for why it's more than a catchphrase or buzzword. Like differentiation is a necessary survival strategy for a segment of the industry in the near future. But the basic idea is this, and of course, I'll let Brandon dive way more into this, but I just want to set the stage. The thing is, 
we already kind of knew that there was going to be some demand destruction more than likely over the horizon with, you know, with, with regard to fuel demand. Um, internal combustion engine is not losing its app is not losing its appetite or it's losing its appetite for fuel. The cars are going to get more, more fuel efficient. People are going to have to pump less gas. There's just a lot of factors that are kind of working in a way where if you're a convenience store owner, you might see people pumping less gallons. And at the same time, that's going to carry over into the store because the convenience inconvenience store to a certain degree is kind of a function of what it means to a captive audience out at the forecourt. If I'm watching Netflix and suddenly I want a candy bar or a bag of chips, it may not be convenient for me to go to a store two blocks down the road. Even if I have a company like GoPuff in my neighborhood, there's there's all these things that were kind of adding up to create a situation where there might be a, a certain loss of demand. What COVID did is it really sort of simulated that environment, um, created a test run. Now, what we think is a lot of folks might be missing this story, though, because, well, fuel margins were high and there was stock up behavior, maybe offsetting the decline in transactions in the store. But this was a test run, and it's a good time for retailers to ask, was my business prepared to thrive in an environment like this? And that's where I wanted to bring in Brandon to really have a conversation about that with Al and I on the podcast. So with that said, Brandon, thanks for, thanks for coming on. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Well, Brandon, we're excited to have you. You know, so you, um, I think you're really the one that had coined that phrase address rehearsal. I thought that was just a brilliant way of looking at this. Um, you know, so, you know, how, how did you kind of get that idea? How did all of this come about? So I've worked at Murphy USA for uh, about, about four years in the fuel analytics department. And, um, you know, I, I, I was basically in the weeds when it came to, you know, the demand trends, the forecasting, uh, the pricing trends, all the margin. Um, and when you get that kind of in-depth kind of view of the data, you really start to see like, hey, the, the, here are the general sentiments that, you know, that basically the market participants have, but you also start to see where they start to diverge from, you know, basically the behavior that you see on the street. And um, w when you look at, you know, the demand trends, uh, really since 2007, it's kind of flattened out. It's had some kind of volatility, right? But but when you see, you know, like those same store sales and kind of that negative one to two kind of percent decline, you start to say, hey, where does this kind of end up? And when, you know, uh, basically COVID-19 happened where, you know, you saw basically demand drop overnight by what, 30% uh, in, you know, across the country, that's when you start to say, you know, it's like, hey, the the essential kind of workers are still are still on the job. Uh, a lot of the people that, you know, that, that you took off the street, you know, they're still being able to work from home. Society is still able to function. And you start to kind of realize like, Hey, you know, that we can survive consuming a lot less kind of gasoline uh, than maybe we've been consuming. Uh, and when you look at the headwinds that kind of demand for gasoline has going off forward, which we explained in the article, uh, I think part two goes in depth, you have major kind of headwinds where, you know, it, it's not even a discussion of, hey, what is demand growth going to look like? It, it's how fast is that decline going to happen? Uh, so I feel like, you know, when you look at, you know, that 30% drop for COVID, 
if you just think if everybody stays home one day a week from basically commuting, you would see probably about a 10% kind of drop in fuel off the top. So if, you know, people are able to work from home, uh, the nature of the commute is starting to change. People's kind of relationships with their cars are changing. The kind of cars that they're driving, uh, the internal combustion engine is making strides. And you also have, you know, the threat of, you know, alternative kind of drivetrains, uh, particularly in the form of electric. So you have all of these factors that are playing together against fuel demand. So I feel like, you know, COVID is it, it is the demand drop or or the demand that we've seen over 2020 likely to continue, not immediately, but I do feel like, you know, in in the medium term, you have to be prepared. And, and I think that, you know, operators need to start asking themselves like, hey, if this was the new kind of normal and if margins were anywhere near what they used to be, what is my kind of business, you know, actually look like? For example, in the mid 2010s, after the crash, after the 2014 crash of oil, um, we saw, you know, basically, basically, even though the even though the prices were starting to drop off. And, you know, basically that demand growth was still anemic. It, it didn't get anywhere close to what we saw in the mid 2000s. Uh, we also saw that, you know, basically the margins just kept getting tighter and tighter because people are competing on the street more and more every single day. Uh, uh, the competition is particularly heating up because a lot of the mom and pop kind of branded guys are completely getting eaten up by, you know, uh, your big consolidators, 7-Eleven, uh, Circle K. Those are going to be the guys that, hey, when they come into a market, they're going to be pricing, you know, with kind of the network effects in mind. You don't get the free real estate at the bottom of the market that you used to see where you had people who may not be paying attention to their price or they had enough of their core kind of customer base that they could price much higher than everybody else. They weren't too kind of worried about it. Now you have more and more players, even as the number of stores drop, um, even the ones who are left are more competitive. So you're just seeing pressure for the demand side. You're seeing a lot of pressure on the margin side. Uh, those trends don't seem to have any kind of counterbalance and the biggest advantage that you know uh that a fuel kind of retailer can create is is by creating a draw that makes that that, that gets people in the door without having to compromise on price uh without having to compromise on basically the volume and and that's going to come in the form of a lot of different things. Uh, when you look at the bigger players, that's going to come in the form of, hey, if we can control our cost, we can, can continue to compete on price. Uh, going forward, what we've seen over the past few years is that you know those marginal customers that you're gaining on price are more expensive. You're paying way more. You're putting more pennies on the street to get to drive the growth than you ever had to do in the past. And that's just not a sustainable place to be in. And that's, you know, the hypothesis that, you know, those fuel forward guys are being pushed into different kind of business models to differentiate themselves. And that's, that's kind of uh, the theory that we kind of proposed. That was kind of the thrust of the article uh, with the, with kind of the dress rehearsal 
was that, hey, if you experience the demand drop that you have today for the gasoline, could you survive on the long run kind of margins? Uh, for context, that people may not know, you know, the average kind of margin, uh, we'll say on the aggressive side, probably about 18 to 20 cents per gallon. That, that, that's about how much, you know, people typically kind of make on a gallon of regular fuel. And during the COVID times, because you had crude fall off so, so steeply, you had your cost falling so quickly, uh, you saw average kind of margins on the street almost double to nearly 40. There are plenty of places that were in the 50 cent average. So when you're doubling your margin and I, your volumes are only cut by... 30%, your gross is fine. Uh, but what happens when, hey, you just have that 30% drop in gross, right? And, and I think that's what that that's the scenario that we were really trying to explore with the dress rehearsal. Um, yeah. You know, and in a kind of an interesting way, you know, Al, I think back to the story when uh, when you and I did that Nax Road trip and we were talking with Steve over at College Junction Mudbugs, um, the story that he had told us, I think really describes exactly what's going on here. So um, for some context, Brandon, uh, this guy, <laughs> Al took me to this place at, I mean, I'm pretty sure the food there took about two years off my life, but I don't Wrong. regret eating it. Um, this is a convenience store in middle of absolutely nowhere. Um, well, I guess it's got, it's a little tiny college town, but it's still like in the middle of nowhere. Really Cajun cool country. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're all in the but, middle of nowhere here. I mean, this guy's got like an old fuel tank in the back room that he, uh, you know, cut a hole in the side and turn it into this big smoker. I mean, there's nothing like it in the in the world. It's incredible. But, you know, we're talking to him and he gets into his story. He had bought this gas station and um, I think we'd post this video on LinkedIn like a couple years back, but he had, he had bought this gas station and was doing exactly that, kind of running the very fuel forward business model, um, just the traditional convenience store. And what happened is some competitors moved in. Um, one of them may have even been a Murphy, um, but it maybe a racetrack, but it doesn't really matter who it was. He had some tough competitors move in and suddenly he had that, that competition. And he just realized, um, man, I can't survive unless I do something that these guys are never going to do. It's like, he kind of saw the writing on the wall. So he just, and it wasn't easy, but he just moved into selling like some of the best Cajun food you're going to find anywhere. Um, and it worked. Uh, yeah. that, I mean, that build, that build a strong business, but that's, that's kind of the scenario being described here. It's just that the advantages in that type of model don't belong to the small retailer and, um, the near future may not be very kind to them if they, if they, if they stay competing that way. Yeah. They're going to have to find something else. And, and what I'm curious about, Brandon, you know, talking about, okay, well, we're not going to be using as much fuel because we might be working from home. Um, uh, you know, I had a discussion the other day with someone about electric cars and uh, you want electric, electric cars could be a game changer. But from what I understand, Frank, you may know something about this. Doesn't it take a long time to charge these cars? Yeah, I'm going to turn that over to Brandon because I, I know that's a topic <laughs> that you've got a lot of opinions on. Yeah, because I think, I mean, I'm thinking, would you want to go sit 45 minutes in a, in a charging station, gas station, C-store while your, your car charges up? So I'm wondering yeah, or, or how far away are we from having a, uh, an electric car that can be charged in a short amount of time, Brandon. Let's think about what, you know, like the average day for your typical kind of electric vehicle owner could could kind of look like. Don't forget, they can charge at home. 
when your fuel Ford kind of guys, when your convenience store guys start talking about, Hey, I want to put in an EV charger. You have to realize, you know, if fueling the vehicle is one of the ways that you're going to bring people in, you're competing with basically the gas station at home, right? That, that, that's really the big change that you're going to see kind of with the EV guys is that, Hey, um, I think the average commute complete. So round trip, uh, for the average person is somewhere around uh, between 30 and 40 miles. Uh, Frank, you might have a better number on that. I think that was one of the stats that you had pulled. But I've seen I've seen a few stats, but I think that's pretty accurate, though. Yeah, it, yeah. But I, th- I think the point is, is that, you know, y- you have a range these days of 200 plus miles. So there's no way that people are driving on average 200 miles a day and there's so many more options to charge. I just don't see like, you know, even with the speed of the chargers, let's say that you even had a charger that could take them from, you know, basically empty to full in, you know, like a five kind of minute span, very much on kind of point with, you know, a typical MPD, you'd be sitting there saying like, who are you really competing against for fueling at that point? Do you even need to be in that game? Uh, because there's going to be so few people who actually need it. And if they're on a long, if they're spending all day in the car, if they're on a long kind of road trip, you know, all of the scenarios where you may see, you know, like them start to hit on that kind of range and need a fulfill at that point, are they going to be stopping for you because you're going to be so much cheaper on price or, you know, the electricity, or is it going to be basically the inside kind of offer that's going to differentiate? Because I would imagine that, you know, it's going to be difficult to, to really differentiate your cost on the electric kind of vehicle side. You have so many places that, that, you know, offer completely free charging or, you know, uh, and when things get more, you know, uh, I guess mainstream, uh, y- y- you have all kind of loyalty offers uh, that could, you know, provide kind of reduced charging and all these other things much uh, like you see in kind of th- the fuel world now. So I don't know if, electric vehicles will ever be compatible with the traditional convenience store experience uh, when it comes to fuel, when it comes to the fuel experience. Obviously, people are still going to want to stop and get a candy bar. They're still going to want to stop and kind of consume. But you're really seeing, if if you're seeing the shift to electric kind of vehicles for that consumer, in their mind, you have to shift from a stop kind of over to a destination. And that's the big change that we expect that, you know, a C-store kind of operator is going to have to kind of understand as, you know, electric vehicles become adopted. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a good point too. I, um, you know, I had come across this survey that was done in, in Norway back in 2016, which I guess 2016, I mean, maybe it was still some early adopters, but regardless, I find this interesting. Um, it said, and, and again, for anyone listening, Norway's kind of always held up as, you know, the epitome of a market that's shifting toward electric vehicles. But um, essentially what I found, and I'll just read this right here, it said standard public chargers are less regularly used, but 60% of EV owners use them at least monthly or yearly. And here's the kicker. Only 10% use them on a weekly basis. So it's like public chargers, only 10% of EV owners are using those on a weekly basis. That's just crazy to me. And 
again, I mean, you're going to charge at home. If you don't charge at home, but you're commuting to work and you're not someone working from home, there's a good likelihood that some of these workplaces are going to have chargers. Um, oh, good point. It just seems like you're really diluting the customer base and just slicing it off here and there. And um, not to mention, I mean, who knows what will happen to movie theaters when this is all said and done. Um, I found out the other day I can apparently rent an AMC to myself for a hundred bucks, which I'm really tempted to do at this point. Cause <laughs> that just appeals to me for so many reasons, but, um, they're, <laughs> they're, they're hurting, but I mean, a movie theater could put chargers in. That'd be a natural place to just top off a car. I'm already in there for two hours, three hours, whatever. Um, Ooh, wow. but I mean, hell, a furniture store could drop a charger outside if they wanted. Anyone can. It just seems like the barrier to entry is effectively zero. Um, it's just different from, from fuel. It's, it's yeah. a completely different game. Yeah, I mean, like basically, if you want to think about it this way, I mean, like you know, they're already that they're already hooked up to the electricity infrastructure, right? So they have the pipeline that's directly connected already, and then on top of that, you don't have any of the environmental concerns. Uh, the capital cost is relatively small. Um, that the, there are so many things that just make that kind of barrier to entry almost. Zero, And I'd be curious, you know, how many of those public chargers in kind of Norway were already at people's destination that they were going to anyway, and it was just convenient to charge versus, hey, I need this charge. Like, I'm going to stop and go basically out of my way to find a public charger because I need it. I think that that would be kind of an interesting discussion to have just because the behavior or the consumer kind of behavior around the convenience store almost centers basically around a need you Mm -hmm. need fuel and you cannot get it anywhere except a place that has that sells you know gasoline um so i think that you know having that captive kind of having that fundamental difference of having captive kind of demand that has a high kind of barrier to entry uh versus something that anybody can put in at any time and you know, it has a completely different regulatory support. You know, you, you, you've got initiatives on initiatives, you know, on initiatives to promote, you know, basically the EV adoption, there are grants to put in infrastructure. So that barrier to entry starts out low, but then on top of that, it's uh, subsidized at least, you know, here in the United States. So, um, so I definitely feel like, you know, that, that, it wouldn't take a lot of EV adoption to start seeing those changes in certain kind of pockets of the country, uh, especially concentrated among kind of the wealthier kind of demographics. It's going to be a challenge for the fuel kind of retail in that environment. So we're probably going to see convenience stores, those that haven't done it yet, focus on something besides fuel to, to draw people in. Because I, I, <clears throat> I know down here, we have sea stores where people eat in every day. They have a they have a morning crowd that goes there for breakfast. These people don't buy fuel when they go there in the morning. They just go there to, to have biscuits mm-hmm. and gravy and coffee and bacon and uh, stuff like that. So they're they're there for for the food anyway. Um, so I'm wondering how some of these sea stores that especially the the chains. I mean, I, I you guys know a lot more about chains than me because I just focus on individually owned stores. But I'm wondering, you know, if you if if at some point the chains are going to lose some of their uh, their volume of fuel business, what are they going to do to to draw folks in? I mean, I, I wonder because I don't I don't I find chains so uh, 
they're, they're all so generic and, and cookie cutter to me. Uh, you know, I don't know. I just, what, what are they going to do? Or are they just keep doing things the way they do it? Are they getting enough people in wanting stuff from the roller grill and things like that right now that it's, that's just going to stay? I don't know. I wonder. When I was at Murphy, we had, we had a store in a small town. Basically, our fuel volume kept dropping. And we noticed that there was a mom and pop that was basically across the highway that would match our fuel price every single time. At first, the pricing team is perplexed. Like, hey, there's no way these guys are getting, you know, like as good of a deal on fuel as us. Let's kind of turn the screws on them. We would start to price aggressively, trying to get the volume back just to see, hey, where's that kind of elasticity in the market? And we kind of tested that for a month or two. And we just saw they would match us every time. Like, you know, basically within a couple of hours, they were at the exact same price. We could go up, they would go up. They, they, they just matched us. Um, and it brought up this entire discussion of, hey, how, how can they afford to do this, right? I was kind of like, guys, uh, see, I had gone to college in the town. Um, so, you know, I knew this particular store. So when they brought it to me, I was like, guys, this store sells the best kind of biscuits and gravy in town. It, it, it was literally the exact same yeah. thing where, yeah. where you're going in and these guys make so much on basically the restaurant on the inside and the fuel is there to get people to come in every day. It's a draw because they're capturing the guys who were, you know, on their way to work. They know, Hey, I'm going to get a decent kind of deal on gasoline. I don't need to get the cheapest kind of price because it's convenient because I'm going to stop here for kind of breakfast anyway. Um, and I mean, at the end of the day, they probably weren't losing any money, you know, on the fuel. I mean, like everybody still had pretty good kind of margins at the time. So they're still making a little bit off of fuel, but they don't need to make the money off of the fuel. Wow, okay. um, they, need, they need to keep the volume of basically – you know, the breakfast up and lunch and dinner. It was a really popular place to go to. And as long as the price was pretty much the same or within a couple of pennies, people didn't care. And, and that was basically a lesson for us was that it's like by the flip side of that coin, we could bring the price up, they would come up. <laughs> so we wouldn't even see, see basically the volumes go down. So that, you know, equilibrium that we saw in the market, the margins went basically up for basically everybody because we decided, hey, we're going to go ahead and and kind of restore the market. Um, but it's those kind of dynamics that you know allow those kind of differentiated guys to compete with the chains. Now, what are the chains going to do? You know, I think the first thing that I think of when I see a chain that is differentiating itself in an incredible way has to be Casey's. Mm, Casey's yep. is one of the biggest pizza companies in the country but they're also a gas station chain right they're primarily a convenience store they sell fuel they're good at it but what really differentiates them what keeps people coming in and what keeps people coming through even through the pandemic is pizza that's how they kind of differentiate themselves and when you you know start to really look at what's going on in the social kind of media in the Midwest. When you talk to people from uh, the Midwest inside of the Casey's footprint, everybody knows it. 
everybody's been there. Everybody's had the pizza. It is a cultural institution in the region. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and would you ever say that their pizza is some of the best pizza in the world? No, it's still going to be your gas station pizza, right? But it's differentiated enough. It's basically, you know, elevated enough to where it's a step above. And I think that just goes to show you that these chains don't have to do much. They just have to find what they can do well and basically execute on it. And I think that, you know, over the past 10 years, that's what chains have started to see is that, hey, you know, with the consolidators kind of coming in, Circle K, 11 those guys were like, hey, we're good at running the traditional convenience store. Uh, we we have back end and the technology processes in place to scale. We're going to basically execute against, you know, that strategy of extreme growth. And they did that extremely well. And going forward, it's just going to be, is that enough? Is that strategy enough? And I think, you know, you had a lot of, you know, your fuel forward chains, uh, you know, Speedway is the big one that kind of comes to mind that said, you know, we're, we're good at this and we're basically going to execute on it. And they did. But as the years kind of came on, margins started to get compressed. Valuation started to get pretty high. And, you know, all of a sudden, hey, they just got sold in the biggest transaction in the history of the industry. So when you look at the fact that, you know, you have all of these guys who used to be fuel forward either getting bought or starting to pivot towards basically the QSR side of the industry, you start to realize that if you're just a fuel forward kind of retailer, you're doubling down on that strategy that's really a no man's land uh, because, you're, because your margins and your volumes are going to be basically eroded on all sides by the consolidators, by the merchant back kind of canopies, and by the QSRs, in addition to just the general kind of macro environment. So there's there's really no reason to stagnate and say, hey, fuel is where we're going to stake the future of our company. So, Brandon, for our listeners up in Bunky, uh, which is a small town here in uh, Louisiana, what is fuel forward? What does that mean? Uh, so that means a convenience store that has the most basically generic backcourt or, or, you know, the store itself just has basically the bare bones uh, when you're yeah. thinking, you know, the old kind of gas stations that just have, you know, like a cooler of kind of Cokes in the back or something like that. Right. Really those, those guys who depend. And I think the better way of putting it is stores that depend on fuel volume and margin to grow. Got it. That's what it really comes down to is the cost structure of kind of the business behind it. Well, you know, and what you're describing, um, in a, kind of a weird way, I, I feel like the market here in Des Moines is a perfect example of how these things play out. Um, so I always tell people like Des Moines has got to be one of the most competitive convenience store markets, period. It's 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 a surprise when you see an independent with one of the major oil companies on its canopy here because they are very rare around the city. Um, and they definitely don't occupy the best real estate, that's for sure. Uh, what you find instead is, okay, in the city um, – You've got 
of course, Casey's, you know, Casey's had headquartered just north of the city in, in Ankeny. So Casey's is all over. You've got come and go. You've got both quick trips, uh, KT and QT. You've got um, Hy-Vee building stores that are just something else altogether. These new fast and fresh stores. Um, I just went to one this morning and they're incredible. But um, I remember, so it's like, all right, you know, the the advantages that sort of the QSR side of the industry has, um, I mean, those guys draw foot traffic like no one else really can. The consolidator, um, their advantages tends to be just being more sophisticated at that traditional convenience store. But head to head, I don't think they can really compete with the QSRs. We had a consolidator I, I won't pick on who um, bought around four properties in Des Moines. I think it was, what was it, last year? Um, I'm looking at their store lo- locator right now and none of them are there. Um I remember seeing the news and I was like, are you guys out of your minds? Like you can't compete with what we have here in the city. No one's going to go to your stores. And, um, I don't know what happened, but they sure don't seem to be here right now. So maybe they backed out of that. But when you go out of the city, uh, well, and of course you got the merchant canopies. One of the things that we talk about in the article, again, it's that trifecta, the QSRs, the merchant supported and the consolidators, each pulling away in a different direction with their own advantages. You can see how the merchant canopies play out. We've got a corner in Ankeny, Iowa, that whenever I check it on gas, buddy, it's like 30 cents lower than the rest of the market. And it really got crazy uh, when crude oil crashed. And I mean, I paid a dollar one a gallon one day at this area and then found out I overpaid because the next day it was 99 cents. And I'm like, damn, I missed my opportunity. Right. (laughs) Um, I just wanted to pay that much because I haven't paid it since Murphy got in a price war with the Casey's one time when I was in high school and they both dropped their prices. Um, And I was like, man, I want to pay under a dollar again. This is awesome. Well, anyway, you can go out to this area. And what happens is you've got a Sam's Club right next to uh, a fleet, uh, a fleet farm. If anyone has a fleet farm in their area, they know that those guys will like price on par with the uh, membership, um, you know, with the membership programs. Uh, Fleet farm matches Sam's Club all the time. But the problem is you've got two Casey's just a few blocks away, a quick trip, and then there's some other stations nearby. And I feel like they put pressure on everyone else to drop their prices, too. Like this has even gotten attention from the local news multiple times. So this area, the prices are always driven down by the presence of those merchant canopies. I mean, they can do that because they've got these massive stores parked behind them that make a ton of money. Like, they don't need to make money on that gas. Um, I mean, they could run at a loss and they'd probably be be fine. But you go outside of the city uh, where you've got a lot of these single-store small-town guys, well, then a company, a consolidator like Yesway can come in and outcompete those guys. You know, we went to a Yesway when we were at... Um, we were out in uh, South Dakota in the Black Hills. There was one in Custer. I got to tell you, that store put everybody to shame. It was great. Um, it had probably 80% of all the staple groceries that you would need in a given week. Had one of the best bourbon selections I've ever seen at any convenience store anywhere. It was really solid. Um, great stuff. And they hire good people. They they keep their stores clean. Their customer service is nice. Um you know, they run a sophisticated operation that meets, you know, checks all the boxes. It's it just so to Brandon's point about these fuel forward guys, your small chain, your single stores out there that are just expecting to make all this money, you know, drive all these people in with fuel and flip a couple candy bars or packs of beer to them. That may not be the right strategy moving forward. They don't have a lot of advantages if they have to go head to head against either of these, you know, any of these three categories. You know, which kind of brings me back to that story about Steve at College Junction Mudbugs. I feel like he saw yeah. that year. I feel like he saw that years ago and made a smart pivot. And that's kind of what we're talking about is for everyone in that position, 
I mean, you've got to find a you've got to find a way to differentiate yourself. It's like this this isn't a catchphrase. Like this is actually a, a necessary strategy. You know, for being in a little town like uh, Eunice, which is in the Horticasian country, this guy <clears throat> really was an innovator. He sold the store uh, a year or so ago, but he was still doing things like gamifying his uh, his Facebook post to when when oh yeah <laughs> he, he, he owned the fuel business and then lost that to to Walmart and somebody else. I think uh, Racetrack moved it down. So then he focused on food. Then he owned the crawfish, you know, business during the crawfish season. Then one next year he had two two competitors. He he started doing these Facebook games, giving away crawfish for families. Got his volume back up. I, I think with with some of these uh, the independents, there's this constant uh, this constant need to be creative and and to constantly set yourself apart from your competition because competition's gonna gonna going to be there. I mean, Eunice is a very small town, and you would think that, you know, a guy like uh, Steve at, uh, at Mudbugs would be safe, but he wasn't. So I can't imagine in a, in a city the size of Des Moines or someplace like that how resourceful one must have to be uh, to be able to, to stay ahead of the competition. And, you know, um, you know, Perini is a good example of somebody who constantly does that. Yeah. So, so moving forward on this, Brandon, for those smaller chains, for those single store folks that really do need to sort of make that pivot. Where are some of the gaps in their execution that you've identified? I know one thing we've talked about just privately is customer experience, for example, um, uh, which, you know, you're talking to two guys here that will walk in every gas station restroom they encounter and, and check them out. So <laughs> I think the keys are just kind of the basics that, you know, you see in almost every survey that kind of comes out of the industry is, is that it's really about uh, the cleanliness, safety, First and foremost, I mean, like uh, my wife will not stop anywhere that is not extremely well lit. If it looks kind of dirty or kind of run down, not going to happen. And I think that, you know, there's some very low effort, low cost ways that people can kind of revitalize their space, make it something that's, you know, a little bit kind of more inviting, even if it's just a fresh coat of paint. But past that, what I would say is, is that make, you know, your customer make it easy, you know, make sure that, you know, like the card machines are up, make sure that, you know, it, it's easy for people to basically get in and out of the lot from, you know, like, like just keep the lot up. There's a lot of potholes, uh, a whole bunch of stuff like that. And then from there you get into your more, you know, like involved things, which would be starting to kind of, you know, augment that inside offer, really start to differentiate with the product mix that you carry, start to carry some unique products I know that, you know, something that strikes a lot of people that I've talked to is an easy way uh, to start to do that is to start to, you know, stock locally made products. You can generally get pretty good deals on those and and people love to see things that come out of their community. Uh, and then, you know, when people are coming into the community, oh, when they're starting to travel, that generates interest, that generates the curiosity. There's a convenience store that's in Magnolia, Arkansas about, you know, an hour away from the Murphy USA headquarters. And it's this little restaurant called Mule Kick. And Mule Kick. I love that. My name. wife. <laughs> yes. That's a great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's cool. We would drive basically, you know, like, actually, I think it was half an hour to get there. And we would go half an hour back to go eat because they made fresh pizza. But they had a convenience store in the front and they stocked it with, you know, like just little Homemade things from kind of around Arkansas. Uh, almost everything in there was made in Arkansas. 
A lot of it was made, you know, within the surrounding couple of counties, but they had about 50 beers on tap. So, I mean, you know, when you think, (laughs) when you think about the experience that you go in there for, when you look at it from kind of the outside, it's just a prefab kind of metal building that the owner went in and completely redesigned, refurbished using all reclaimed kind of materials. And they were packed and all of the products that they sold uh, a great example was that all of the beers there, they were all from Arkansas. You couldn't find any of the major brands, no Anheuser-Busch. It was only the craft kind of breweries around the state. But then, but then even the food, all of the meats came from different kind of farms around the state. And uh, they had really, really, really good ice cream that would come out of Little Rock. And they would get the unique kind of flavors that would be like one off that the creamery would make because they knew, hey, you know, we'll take it down there and they will sell a couple gallons of it. So they were creating a draw because you would go basically back and, you know, every week they would have new flavors. They'd have the unique flavors. um, And then they would also stock, you know, like their own T-shirts, their own merch that was basically the mule kick kind of branded merch they would have. Um, they had the growlers that had the mule kick kind of logo on it. Um, so it created this entire experience and it created this entire community around it that was drawing in people from over a hundred kind of miles away consistently because it was such a great experience. And because the products that were basically available, they couldn't get anywhere else. And the biggest thing is that because basically the owner she put her heart and her soul into it. You really got to know her, kind of got to know the people at the restaurant. So it really felt like a community. It felt kind of like a family. So that just enhanced that experience so much. And when you look at, you know, people who are single store kind of operators, that's something that they can differentiate themselves on that no chain can do. It's that bespoke experience. It's having something that, hey, it does take a bit of that sweat equity but it's going to pay off. And I believe that, you know, that's something that, you know, no matter how hard a chain tries, no matter how well they train their managers, you're just never going to have that same level and attention to detail to the customer experience that you're going to have when someone, when that is their store, when that is their business. So I do feel like that's a big differentiator for them. This is a really good point. Like I'm looking at mule kick right now on Google maps and like, I want to go to this place. Um, it looks Oh man, yeah. <laughs> this this looks like exactly the kind of place I would love to go. And but here's what I'm noticing beyond like the awesome photos and the pizza looks to die for, which I should not be looking at on an empty stomach, but um <laughs> there you know I've complained for a while that a big blind spot for a lot of the a lot of the chains is, you know, they'll they'll focus so much on trying to be witty on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, but yet they don't even reply to the comments people leave on Google Maps. And I'm like, you've you know it's cool that you're sharing memes and and everything, but you have customers that are talking about the actual experience at your store. And in some cases complaining about it and you're not even acknowledging them. Like that is a fundamental massive mistake. And I'm looking at mule kick here. Um, you know, someone left a glowing review, just raving about it. And the owner comes in and says, thank you so much for taking the time to give a detailed review. We, uh, you know, like they're just out there uh, extending this customer service into Google Maps. Like these people know what they're doing. Um, I see, unfortunately, they had someone, an employee test positive for COVID. But like if I was a customer of theirs, I would love the fact that they went on Google Maps and they and they made a post on there and 
said, hey, guys, this happened. It sucks. It is what it is, but we're dealing with it. And here's what we're doing. And here's how we're addressing it. Like that what that honestly would make me feel better about going back there and and continuing to spend money there, that they're open and transparent and they're telling you what's going on while we're all dealing with this mess right now. Like what this looks like a really amazing place. It really does. It's pretty cool looking. I was just looking at it on Facebook. They have tons of followers, like 5,000, <laughs> yeah. which which seems like a lot for a, a place in a little town in Arkansas. So, Brandon, is this in a, a convenience store or attached to a convenience store? So they have a convenience kind of store up front, and they stock it with, like, you know, like a lot of, you know, the old school kind of candy. Uh, so I, uh, Oh, that's so cool. For example, I got, like, a Charleston Chew uh, for the first time in a long time. Wow. Uh, but, but, but almost everything that they stock is, is going to be products that come out of Arkansas. Um, so they have a whole bunch of coffee for sale. They have, um, they had candles, they had, you know, like kind of pottery, some mugs, uh, they had food, all of the convenient products, but they were, you know, basically elevated, you know, it's like, instead of just having like, Oh, okay, here's a jar of the planters kind of mixed nuts. They have like a bag of mixed nuts out of like a small place, you know, in the middle of the state that has an organic kind of nut farm. And, and that's cool. They just have like a bag of their mix and they have like three different flavors. It's those kind of products that they, that they know their customer and they know what their customer wants. Um, so they stock it and they do extremely well. I mean, like, you know, being, you know, on that side of kind of the industry, you know, anytime that we would go there, which was way too often. I would sit there and I would just observe like how much of that merch are they, you know, kind of able to turn over. And it was actually surprising because obviously the main draw was the restaurant, the pizzas, the beers, all of that. But like when you really started to pay attention, people were still going to grab like, oh yeah, I'm going to, you know, get a candy bar on the way out in addition to everything else. Or, hey, yeah, I'm going to take a pint of the ice cream to go because I can't get this kind of ice cream at home. I can't go to Walmart and buy the same ice cream, you know, at all, much less for basically a better price. So they were able to, you know, like basically establish kind of themselves as like, Hey, if you're going to come and you're going to, if you want some ice cream tonight, are you going to go to Walmart and kind of pick up a pint or are you going to come to us and get something that you've never had before? And I think that, you know, the number of people that were just coming in just to buy merchandise just to buy stuff out of the convenience store side was actually pretty high considering that, you know, from their kind of business model, they're definitely a restaurant first. Do they, do they sell fuel? They do not. That's interesting. Yeah. That's a great looking place. Yeah. And, and, and this is a really good point too, because I, I think like one thing I've noticed a lot, like um, I haven't done it as much the past probably two years. But um, before that, I, I traveled to a lot of rural convenience stores and, you know, you just pop in these random places in the middle of nowhere and just go check them out. And I, you know, time and time, time and again, they all had the same CPG products. They had the same everything. They had um, same snack bars, the same chips, the same just offer in general. And that always struck me as bizarre. I, I'm, I'm like, in so many of these communities, you've got local people making something really unique in certain categories, whether it's just a local local honey, local mm -hmm. chips, local ice cream. And I'm like, why would you not want to sell that kind of stuff? Because, I mean, I can go and get a bottle of Coca-Cola anywhere. Like, that's not going to drive me to your store versus the guy across the street. I mean, maybe if I'm on one side of the road versus the other, but that's not loyalty. Uh, 
I mean, that's just, you're hitting people on impulse and impulse and necessity. I wouldn't drive out of my way for that, but man, if, if someone's got some product that I just can't get anywhere else, or they've just got this experience that, you know, it's, I don't know, Hey, it's let's go out tonight and just go somewhere different and not cook. Uh, yeah, this is, this is our third place. This is where we're going to hang out. Like if you're creating that kind of an environment, that's, that's, that's when you truly got something. That's like our, um, one of our past podcast guests, uh, Kent couch with his stop and go in Bend, Oregon. I mean, that guy's got, he's got like 40 beers on tap. It is, it is a place I would actually just want to go hang out or like high country market in round rock. If I lived in Austin, that is where I would go hang out <laughs> because it's the coolest oh, place yeah. in town. And <laughs> like, these are, these are options available to operators, but I think so many, and I've seen this in some cases they're you know, they're letting their merch. Some of them, I feel like they, they might be letting their merchandising strategy be driven by some of their vendors, you know, some of their suppliers. I mean, folks that are coming in and selling to them rather than just taking a look at this and seeing, you know, do I really need these 40 varieties of generic mixed nuts? Can I just eliminate some of these and bring in something new and experiment and be different? And um, I don't know. I, it, it, it's just there's there's like a there's just a sea of like the same experience out there. And um, folks like the one you're describing, these guys are prepared to stand out and, and, and drive some business. Yeah. And I think that's where the single store kind of operators have the advantage over the chains is because they're basically in the community every day. They are the boots on the ground. They know the trends, they know what's popular, and I, I'm sure they're already paying attention to those signs either, you know, either kind of consciously or subconsciously. But I mean, it, it, you've got to think that, you know, that, that there's so much space for a single store kind of operator or, you know, even someone who owns two or three stores or, you know, a small local chain to really go in and say, hey, what can we do? What can we stock that's going to make our marginal kind of customer, a sticky customer. And I don't think it takes that much. I really don't. To your point, Frank, you know, I can get a Coke anywhere, but I can't get Lolly ice cream, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I, and when we look back, me and my wife kind of look back at, you know, like our time in Arkansas, it's those products that really stood out that were basically the local, the places that carry those, those are the places that we want to go back to. Like when we plan to make a trip back to El Dorado once kind of the COVID stuff kind of passes. We plan to go back to Mule Kick. We plan <laughs> on that. You know, we we plan on kind of going to kind of Mule Kick in the same way that we plan on that we plan on kind of going to Bucky's anytime that we can, because they offer a differentiated experience from anything else in that kind of region. And when we look back and and when we're going on like our long and a road trip going back to Louisiana uh, to see family, you know, I can't think of one stop along the way where we're going to be stopping at a single store kind of operated place because we don't know who's out there. We don't know if they're safe. We don't know like the state of the store. We do our best to look kind of basically at gas buddy, but even then we we've kind of been burned by a couple of the reviews on there. So so as we make our moves, at, as we drive back and forth, we're creating these habits that are being kind of ingrained where it's like, hey, we're always going to stop at this place because we know it's great. And I think that people, you know, it doesn't take a lot to change a habit. It takes one positive experience to get your experience kind of on kind of the mental map 
for people to be like, Hey, that was a really cool experience. We're, we're going to stop there again, or we're going to go, you know, kind of out of our way to try to find that experience. And that's one of the reasons I believe that, you know, if you're a single store operator, you know, you should be monitoring your reviews on Yelp. You should be monitoring kind of your reviews on, you know, Google maps is a great call out gas buddy, all of those kind of platforms, because there's a lot of people trying to find safe, convenient kind of places, but there's also a lot of people trying to find like, Hey, if I'm new to an area, if, if I am just going to drive through, but I'm going to be making the trip consistently, I want to find a place that I want to stop at, that I look forward to stopping at, that I look forward to that experience. And I think, you know, when, when you look at a state who does that incredibly, it's Texas, right? Texas is pretty much built around the road trip. So you've got, um, going from Shreveport to Dallas, every time, uh, before they built the Bucky's and Terrell, (laughs) every time there is a Texas smokehouse that is on, uh, I think it's exit 72, uh, right in Tyler. I wrote about that. And yeah, I would always, huh? Great barbecue. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. It is great. And we would stop there because it was clean. It was extremely well lit. The barbecue was fantastic. And they had every kind of jerky you could ever think of uh, (laughs) that was available. And, and, and that was the place we would stop for gas. We didn't care how much it cost us. And I think there's a Defco across the street, but we still stop at basically the smokehouse because, because that offer is so, so basically differentiated for us. We don't even take a look at the price. I only know that it's basically shell branded. That's all I know. (laughs) We don't even take a look at the price. We just stop and we go there. And then when we come back from Dallas, even if we don't, even if we don't need fuel, we stop at a Bucky's because we're going to buy stuff for the kids. We're going to buy stuff for the nephews. Great thing about that kind of brand actually is that, I mean, like they, they made such an impression on my nephew. Uh, he, he's four uh, um, that he wanted to go as basically a Bucky's worker for Halloween. That uh, is awesome. I like, fully support that decision. Like what other convenience chain can you think of? <laughs> That kids are 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 to that point that that they want basically the red shirt and the khakis. <laughs> I mean, have the little beaver on. Funny. Them. Hold on, I I want to <laughs> dig into that for a second because that 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 right there. I mean, we all three have talked about this, but like you know, people I think completely missed the point about Bucky's Law at the time because they look at the size of the fuel canopies, the sort of monstrous retail theme park experience there. But I think they really ignore just the degree to which these people just execute perfectly on a consistent basis. I, I I mean, like I was thinking about this the other day because I went in a convenience store that had a lot of um, what looked like a lot of empty space on their shelves. But in a lot of cases, it was maybe um, maybe the first half of a, you know, a bang energy drink was cleared out on the cooler and the others hadn't slid down. Right. But, you know, I think back to like when I, uh, when I was in high school, I worked at a, um, Hy-Vee grocery store for a little bit. And I remember one of the things that the, uh, um, store manager always just emphasized. Uh, I mean, he was methodical about making sure that everyone faced those shelves, you know, cause he pointed out, he's like, we could be at, we could have half, half inventory here, but it, we need to look like we're a full store. You know, it's all about the presentation. And a company like Bucky's just, I mean, 
you go in a store that was built 10 years ago and it still looks brand new. They, they, they just don't cut corners on this. But, um, you know, this made me think of something. I was having a conversation with a uh, um, person I know who owns a chain of small chain of stores. And we started talking about uh, loyalty programs. And it's funny because he goes, look, he goes, my loyalty program, it's, it's my stores. You know, when you come in, those make you loyal. He's like, I don't need a loyalty app. And, you know, I think it's telling. That's um, awesome. I haven't seen a loyalty app at Bucky's, and quite honestly, I, 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 they probably don't even need one now. If they took a cue from like no. the, the the fashion industry and they started just giving you more access to the Bucky's brand, okay, that actually might work. If they said like based on your spend, you get classified in different tiers and you get first dibs on limited edition merch, I'd be knocking their door down to be able to buy that stuff online so I can raise my status because I would want the limited edition merch. But the point is, like. I think you see a lot of retailers, they're, they're, they're chasing these things, trying to pull these levers that they think are going to do all these magical things to them. And I'm like, at the end of the day, true loyalty comes from having a, a really awesome customer experience and, a, and just being a great operator. Um, I've stood there and watched people walk into Bucky's and they say things like, I'm like, we're here, we're here. That's how they act when they walk through the front door. Like if you, if you're creating that kind of delight, that kind of experience, I mean, you're, they're just going to keep coming back. Um, getting a bunch of push notifications on a phone that there's 50 cents off on a Coca-Cola or a candy bar. I mean, I'm sorry. I couldn't care less. That's not going to impact my decision on anything. That's why I don't use any of those apps. Well, and I mean, like, I think one of the ultimate expressions of that incredible kind of customer loyalty is that basically Bucky's doesn't have a price sign up. Oh, great. Yes. Place, right. Yes. They don't have any price signs to the street, but they are still consistent, consistently packed because they price competitively with everybody else. They have earned the trust of all of their customers. And that trust is being absolutely rewarded by this insane kind of loyalty because their customers are taken care of. They know that when they go into a Bucky's, it's not just that, Oh, Hey, basically the bathrooms are clean. They're no matter how busy the Bucky's is, there's never a line. Because they have a million, <laughs> uh, they have a million bathrooms for everybody, and and the only time I've seen a line for the bathroom is during Labor Day weekend, and the line for the fuel was longer than basically the line for the bathroom. That that that's how insane volume that they pull, and they do not even have basically a price sign up at all. So people don't even know until they get to the pump, how much am I actually going to pay for this fuel? And they don't care. And they come out with two bags of kind of, of, you know, the beaver nuggets and they've got the stuff kind of Bucky the beaver to, for the kids. And, and, and I would just imagine that, you know, they're making so much from that just customer equity of just like people don't even question, am I getting a good deal on the fuel? Because they trust like, hey, you're not going to charge me five bucks for fuel. They know that they stop anyway. And I feel like that's one of those ultimate expressions of like, when, when you can be confident in, in your knowledge of basically your customer, uh, because I do feel like, you know, you know, when you go into a Bucky's, you know, that they're targeting and basically marketing that customer who is coming in with the biggest possible vehicle with the most amount of people in it. And hopefully all of them are kids. So they all want everything that they walk by. Like mm -hmm. they know how to market to that. They have basically when, when you're going down the highway, 
and you come basically within 200 kind of miles or 300 miles of a Bucky's, you start to see the billboards because that's who they're marketing to and they know their customer. And I think that, that that's probably the biggest thing that I think the chains struggle with is that they're going after so many people to keep that scale up that it's hard for them to create that bespoke experience for them to focus down on what do these people want? Because, because the market that they're trying to capture is so, so, so broad um, that that becomes a challenge. Yeah. I, yeah, I would, yeah. I would, I would totally agree. I, you know, <laughs> I have to laugh. Uh, well, family member of mine had went down to uh, Texas, you know, to help someone, uh, bu- you know, buddy who was purchasing uh, kind of a classic car down there and bring it back, you know, fun little road trip. And uh, they were dealing with some massive line at a McDonald's drive through and, and they're like, man, I don't want to deal with this. Let's go get coffee somewhere else. And they saw a Bucky's billboard. So he goes, hey, Frank's always been telling me about this Bucky's place. Why don't we go check that out? And um, said his uh, friend came out of the restroom and was like, did you see how many toilets are in there? And and just astonished. But um, they had such a fun time at that store. They went back the next day. And then, you know, he was thinking, hey, I'll buy that uh that sweatshirt i really wanted uh when i get home and i was like no you're not you got to buy it at the store they only sell beaver nugs on amazon that's about it <laughs> and here's here's the thing the look on his face it looked it looked like you just took candy from a kid it was like that kind of a look like just defeated like you're kidding me um so i i was down there in february i picked up a hoodie and brought it back but um you know the ability to create that kind of an impression on someone after a single visit it just blows you know people who can do that they've they've really tapped into something powerful and you know no no one's gonna you know no one's gonna care if they if they don't have free to lays on their shelves or something like that that's not the point the point i they built something bigger than that and that's 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 powerful and Honestly, I, I mean, Al, like we've been to so many single stores that pull this off. I mean, this is this is this is an option available to anyone who wants to progress in that direction, and it's a huge competitive advantage for people who don't have the advantages of scale or don't have, um, you know, a Mills Fleet Farm, you know, behind their fuel. Yeah, and you know, this, um, just when you think uh, Bucky's couldn't do anything else, there was a story this morning I saw <laughs> that uh, it was about a Bucky's new innovation. It's not really high tech, but what they've done is they put red and green lights in front of every stall, so now you can actually oh, yeah. see which stalls are empty, which ones are not. Which you know, it's it's not high tech, but the the lead was it's an innovation, and and hey, they got a lot of press out of it because the story reached us down here. So I thought that was kind of interesting that uh, you know they're still doing things and and they're not quitting. And I got to tell you guys, if you haven't had their potato chips, those things are amazing. I mean, they they make the best potato chips I've ever had. It's incredible. Well, so, you know, as we're starting to wrap up here, um, you know, one thing, again, I would encourage everyone to do is make sure to check out the podcast, uh, you know, this episode page, um, you know, and definitely if you haven't already read, read, read the article that Brandon and I co-author that really lays out essentially what we're talking about here with some sort of the looming challenges and how COVID was a a, a, a test run, a dress rehearsal, and what this means for needing to innovate, not just, in a, you know, not just differentiation being a buzzword. But before we close out, you know, I always kind of want to ask, like, how, how did you develop an interest in fuel and convenience? You know, Al and I joke that we have a very bizarre hobby that we run a podcast and talk about gas stations. Uh, <laughs> person pays probably very, you know, li- very little attention to that unless they live next to a Sheets or a Bucky's, I suppose, or eat Casey's pizza. But how did, how did you get involved in this uh, interesting industry? 
Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I really wasn't, you know, involved with, uh, you know, the industry until I started to work for kind of Murphy USA out of college. Um, but, uh, my wife and I, you know, we met in high school, we were about four hours apart kind of during college. So, so I was always having to drive back and forth, back and forth. And I started noticing kind of, uh, the story I told earlier about the Texas smokehouse. I would uh, start to stop there every single time. I noticed that, you know, um, there was a QT by our house. I could stop there. I could get a, you know, like a drink and a sandwich to drive all the way back for four hours. And they had a good price. I could fill up and it was cheap to get, you know, like a hot dog and some chips. So when I got to Murphy, um, it was really an eye-opening experience to see the diversity that exists in kind of the industry uh, to really, you know, start to see, you know, like the experiences and the different kind of business uh, models that exist. And, you know, on the fuel supply side, where um, where I kind of, you know, kind of cut my teeth and from the fuel kind of pricing and everything through, it just became more fascinating to me, especially the behavior around like, you know, it was so hard to categorize a given store. It was so hard to say, oh, well, this is, you know, an Exxon kind of branded guy. So he's going to behave like this. Not the case. We would find exceptions all the time where it's like, they, like this store is, you know, just acting very strange from a pricing perspective. And then you would dive in a little and you would start to find like, wow, this store actually has a super interesting kind of backstory to it. Like, you know, it, you know it's owned by the champion high school uh quarterback or something and everybody just kind of goes there to get their coffee in the morning because you know it's a tradition or like you know you, you start to see like hey there's so many business models out there that are run by either single operators or, or small ch- kind of chain operators that just differentiate themselves to where to where they're basically insulated from what is typically a, an extremely hyper competitive kind of market. Uh, I mean, like when you get into any kind of metro area where you have, you know, like a QT and a Murphy and, uh, you know, a whole bunch of uh, Circle Ks uh, having kind of a showdown, you know, unless you are differentiated in some way, nobody's going to be making any money. So I think that it's all of those kind of dynamics, just being able to observe them from kind of I'm not going to say, you know, from basically the inside, but, but having that unique kind of perspective of being able to see the behavior across the entire industry. um, I think that just drove an incredible interest because it's such a diverse and still very fragmented kind of industry. And there's a lot of stories to be uncovered, a lot of super interesting kind of stories to be uncovered there and really enjoyed the podcast that you guys have put out because I do feel like you know, there, the, there's a lot of those stories that may never get told, but I, I feel like y'all do a kind of a good job of trying to bring those to light. So definitely appreciated. Yeah. Well, thanks for saying that we've, <laughs> we've tried to bring on some interesting folks. And I mean, even at some of the smaller chains, like, um, you know, we had, a, a um, you know, Bourbon Street Deli and ShopRite on. And I, I got to say, I mean, I remember the first time I went to one of those when it was one by Al's house and, I, I mean, I'm surprised more people, even in uh, just around the industry, don't even write a, a, about them. They are putting a lot of people to shame with what they're pulling off at that store. Like that is some that is a really amazing food service operation. Um, it's 
It's incredible. And just the fact that they <laughs> it's, have it's a, a, a dietitian on staff. I mean, that's that's pretty innovative. Yeah, those those guys know what they're doing over there. They're 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 running a great operation. But so you know, as we kind of shift and close out here, so what's it you know what's it that you're you're up to today? You're not at Murphy anymore. You're doing a lot of fuels consulting, and you have a separate role at a different company. Just kind of fill everyone in on you know what it is that you're up to and how they can best reach out and contact you. Yeah, I've been working with a few firms uh, doing some consulting on fuel. So really, kind of on the data science side. Uh, Kind of on the analytics side, I've been doing a lot of sales forecasting, retail pricing optimization, and then I've been doing a lot of economic kind of modeling for firms uh, that are looking to make some capital investment. And I've been working with a couple of other consultancies in the industry uh, to put together uh, some product market performance. Uh, so just exploring, you know, some of the dynamics, you know, around uh, the different kinds of fuels such as, you know, you know, the ethanol free, uh, uh, basically the E15, kind of E85 and all the renewables. So like your biodiesels, uh, the renewable diesel and things like that. So I'm still uh, very plugged into kind of the fuel space. Um, so basically my day job, I, I, uh, I'm a supply chain and business intelligence manager for a company based in Roswell, Georgia. Uh, the easiest way to reach out to me is is basically email or LinkedIn. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And for anyone listening to um, Brandon's LinkedIn, his email, everything, we're going to have that on the podcast page. So definitely be sure to check that out. I And I know I re- always re- reiterate that a million times, but I do put a lot of work into having a ton of links and a ton of awesome <laughs> info and background information on those. So they are a wealth of information for anyone who wants to visit inconveniencepodcast.com. But so as we close out here, I would also just ask... Um, for any of these operators that really do need to make this pivot, what would what would sort of the first step be? What would your overall advice be um, if they were to try to change something tomorrow? If you were going to try to change something tomorrow, the first step is to know your customer, know what they want. And I think things will fall into place. Um, I do think that, you know, yeah. the people who are successful are the ones who know who their customer is. And first, knows who their customer is. Second, knows what their customer values. So um, that, that you don't have to do a lot. Uh, it, it's not this you know big, insurmountable, expensive kind of exercise. It really is just paying attention to your customer and figuring out who you want to sell to. Yeah, I think I think that's really good advice. Well. Thanks for coming on on this episode. I mean, we're really excited to have this really frame the conversation that we have in our next batch of 10. Yeah, I, like that. Um, I think it's so important for operators to seize this opportunity and, you know, use this time to, you know, th- if they're not already pivoting, think, all right, how can I build a real destination business and, um, you know, be in a better position, you know, if this kind of thing ever happens again, or if fuel demand starts to drop off in the near future. So, um, again, thanks for coming on and I would encourage everyone to reach out and connect and connect with Brandon as well. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having me.